Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hello, Micah. Welcome back, everybody, to the Weekly Typographic. Here we are again. It is July already. Can't believe that. Oh my gosh. Don't even say that. What the heck? I am not prepared to consider the date to be honest. Yeah, I mean, and we're still in pandemic times. It is still happening. In fact, cases are still rising. Unfortunately, it depends on who you talk to. But in reality, in the real world, that's true. And we're still pretty locked down, partially by choice for safety. Exactly. Lots lots of crazy stuff happening out there. But But part of that is we've been working on cool stuff for the league, which would be fun to talk about. Oh my gosh, we are just accelerating all the programs that we've been dreaming about for years and making them happen. I mean, I wrote a list down of all of the things that are going to be happening with the league in the upcoming months, and it's really exciting. That's exciting to hear because I don't even know what that list is. Starting sometime next week, working on cool league projects that we've been wanting to and have been putting off. One of those, we've been working on the membership section, which you have really helped inspire me to get my butt in gear in that department so i'm excited to be working on that the progress looks awesome and speaking of awesome membership a thank you to all the wonderful humans who uh, are supporting us being members and uh in this week's typographic our man hugo did an awesome job found a bunch of cool articles that we're going to talk about and also found five awesome font finds for our members this week members saw in the email Plus three gigs and jobs, which all of that is just a lot and is awesome. So much so that members might have to like click a button and be like, ah, show me more, which is kind of cool. I mean, it is awesome that Hugo has been helping us find some great stuff for members that we have so much good stuff this week. I think this week's articles that we found were kind of a bunch of nice things. There wasn't anything super in-depth last week. we, We had a lot to talk about. And I think this week it's kind of like, oh, that's a neat article. That's cool. Yeah. We have a lot of good variety for our digital friends, for our our print designer friends, for our letter form enthusiasts. And we have a very uh, exciting nerd alert coming later. (laughs) So you got to stick with us if you want to hear it. And we're starting off this week's links with an article from the Envision app blog. And it is called How to Get More Design Clients by Showing Your Work. This was one that I actually found last night. And this is a cool blog that we've come across before. Envision is a tool for designers to like keep track of their work. And so they often blog about design. And I think last week was when we had an article about the business of design, right? Mm -hmm. And this spoke to me in that department where I don't think any of the advice in this article is revolutionary. It's kind of stuff I've heard before, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's pretty solid advice about like, this is how to use work that you either have designed or could design in order to impress a potential client and get the conversation going in terms of, hey, I can work for you. Absolutely. As someone that's constantly trying to, you know, optimize my portfolio site and making sure it just is showing the best and most up-to-date work, like I can always use a refresher. 
on what other experts are looking for when they review a design portfolio. Sometimes I'm on the fence of showing the process photos. This article will encourage you to show how you got to your solution and some sketches and maybe wireframes if it's a digital project, which is a good reminder that how you think is also an incredibly valuable asset when you're a potential candidate for a job or a gig. And again, like Micah said, nothing quite revolutionary, but good reminders and just like good, solid portfolio advice. Which I actually like too. There's a section in here, what if I don't have a portfolio? Which Mm -hmm. I've heard frequently. And I like the advice there too of design a fake project. I've seen so many designers explode on the internet from... I, I remember when I was coming up, there was a designer named Dustin Curtis, who I'm still a fan of. And nobody really knew his name, but he made a handful of mock projects for big companies. And he did one where he like redesigned Delta's website or something like that. Wow. And then Delta noticed and they had a bunch of feedback about it. And then that kind of just made this whole conversation that blew up. Not saying every fake design is going to blow up, but it's a cool way to flex your muscles. Absolutely. I mean, as far as letterers, I can also speak from that experience from letters that I know, Martina Floor and Jessica Hish, I both believe started doing kind of mock projects with lettering and got the attention of some bigger name brands. And that's what makes them the most successful letterers in the world right now. So it's, it's a true story. And like, there's definitely case studies about that. So good advice to follow. Cool. Our next article is everything you need to know about design systems. Design systems is kind of this new word that I feel like I don't experience that often because I don't work in the digital space very often. But when I do work in the digital space, people are talking about design systems. It (laughs) seems really abstract to me, but this article actually breaks down what design systems are in a very digestible way, which I definitely appreciate. I have some highlights here from when I was reading. And if you just want like a no frills definition, Gina Ann in the article describes what a system is and says it's composed of tangibles and non-tangible elements. And that would be tools for designers and developers, patterns, components, and guidelines, but also, and it's often the most difficult thing to achieve, some abstract elements such as brand values, shared ways of working, mindset, shared beliefs, dot, dot, dot. So I felt like that kind of some floofy, but it summed it up pretty nicely because I was wondering, is this just brand guidelines? Is this something I really have no idea about because I don't work in digital spaces often? And I thought that that was a nice summary. But I do have to say, I'm so confused what patterns are in UI UX. Like, Micah, can you jump in here? Like, what do you know about (laughs) patterns? Yeah, well, my understanding of a design system is a style guide plus UI components. So you have worked on plenty of branding projects where you're making a logo and a style guide. And the style guide is a description of the colors that you use and the fonts, instructions as a base layer of how to design for this brand, right? And so the pattern library, like the components and pattern, takes those ideas from the style guide and applies them to the coding part of digital stuff, which usually Mm -hmm. apps or websites or something. And it's taken the learnings from code in the last couple of years of let's not build the entire interface, but let's build pieces. Like what does an Mm. input in a form look like? And then what does a form look like? And Mm. how do buttons look? 
and what are the variations of buttons that need to exist and design and code have come together in the idea of making those components exist so you can just kind of plop them in mm. so is patterns are those like part of the modular system that you were describing of not designing a whole interface but parts of it and then kind of repeating elements that work yeah 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 i think that's a good way to put it it's how you assemble the components Okay. And like, does something open in a modal dialogue or does it open in a new page? When you push a button, does the button have a loading spinner inside of it? Or does the page have some other loading thing that, that triggers when you push the button? Those are like the patterns that you probably want to describe and document of so that it can be consistent in the same way that a style guide aims for consistency with color and type. Okay, that's super helpful. And that breaks it down into like a very digestible aspect for me it seemed very abstract for a while and other things in the article i mean besides talking about what patterns are and what design systems are they give great examples of how you can see design systems in use and they even give an example with medium about how they kind of use their non-tangible rule in their design system and how they applied it to a tangible um, design choice. So I thought that was actually quite interesting. And so that's a, that's a they, good way to make the floofy real. Like in that example, they're yeah. saying one of the brand guidelines for medium was direction over choice as in telling the user the best way to do something instead of letting them do anything they want. And the output of that in terms of the component that you actually interact with was when picking colors and fonts they made a really simple one where you only had a few good options that you couldn't screw up. I see now how that relates to brand ideals in how to make an actual mm -hmm. part of it real. Mm -hmm. Without like kind of explaining this whole article, I think it's a good way to be thinking about brand guidelines moving forward because honestly, a lot of brand guidelines were focused on the print side of design for a really long time and kind of thought the developers can just figure out on its own that's not the case moving forward in the very digital world that we're living in and kind of having a more well-rounded guideline or system is going to be necessary. And it's not just going to be about a really nice looking brand guideline. It's going to be kind of about a more like whole thinking from the brand inside, outside, back end, front end. Totally. Cool. So moving from that design system to look a little bit more granular into the process, we have this article from Elliot J. Stocks, and it is called Behind the Scenes of Mado's Rebranding. Am I pronouncing that right? That's a great question. I realize <laughs> now I don't actually know. It's spelled M-A-I-D-O. So it could be Mido, Mado. We have a few tricky pronunciations. <laughs> we hit this a lot, don't we? Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to find out, I'm going to get to the answer of Dalton Mog or Dalton Mag very soon. Just <laughs> That was the wait. first thing that popped into my mind. Every few <laughs> weeks we mentioned them and we're like, Dalton Mag, Dalton Mog, I'm pretty sure it's Mog. Whatever. Go <laughs> today. Mido, cool. And so Elliot, our lovely designer friend, talks about the rebranding that it's more of a typographic rebranding rather than like just colors and layout and all that. It really kind of is a little more granular of a process. And he does a really good job of thoroughly explaining his process and showing that it's not just from point A to point B on a typographic rebranding. There's a lot of steps along the way, maybe mistakes that they have to backtrack on. And not many designers have such an explicit dialogue with their process. And I think this is a good job of showing how it's not just like, come together, polished, 
really easily within like a matter of days. There's a lot of thinking and how does that translate into the final product? Yeah, reading this is a little bit like having a conversation with Elliot. He's very good at the details and he talks about a bunch of the details in a pretty conversational way as you're reading this article. Mm -hmm. And he mentions like, why he chose where he was getting the fonts from. Like he had a reason behind why he decided to only use fonts from font stand as a tiny yeah. example. Yeah. And there are a lot of useful illustrations of, I tried this, this is what it looked like when I tried it. Didn't end up going with that, went with this. This is what it looked like when I tried the different version. And so it's not this super clear cut final version only kind of thing that you usually read about in like brand new or something like, hey, this yeah, was the before true. and this was the after. This this was kind of a, a case study of his process and what he was thinking at each of these stages, which also means yeah. it's kind of long. It's like a lot to read, right? Yeah. But just like a process, it doesn't just happen with the snap of the fingers. There's a lot of thinking that goes into it. And so, yeah. like you said, Micah, definitely good at the details. If the design systems article was kind of like a zoom out of design, creating and design thinking, this is like a zoom in. Our next article, I will be very excited to share because it's about Iceland and me and Micah both love Iceland. i really excited that Hugo found this one this week because of how much we love Iceland. Oh, I thought you would have found this. <laughs> I, don't, I don't pay attention to football, and this is about Iceland football team rebranding. I was just excited because it featured a lot of Icelandic history modernized and built into this like cool new branding. Yeah. So apparently Iceland's football team is actually like doing quite well in the past few years, which makes me excited. I love Iceland. I'm always going to be rooting for the island that has more sheep than people on it. And so this rebrand is done by an Icelandic design studio, Brodenberg, which I looked up their work. They have really, I can't really read much of their work, but the typographic expression of it is awesome. So Because it's in um, Icelandic? Yeah, yeah, okay. it's in Icelandic. I can't read exactly what they're saying, but the typography choices are so expressive. I can kind of understand what they're trying to communicate maybe i'm grateful um, that there's nothing in icelandic that we have to pronounce from this article because oh we my would, gosh we would ruin that i think i i finally figured out when i visited iceland that the d with the crossbar what what's the pronunciation of that it sounds like a th, like a yes. th yes yeah i think icelandic. that might have been the one tip that i mentioned to you before you went last time I was like, oh my this is the one thing that I've learned about Icelandic. Yeah, yeah, okay. I kind of remember that because I'd always be looking at the street signs being like, well, how do you pronounce that? And then eventually yeah. you get it. Anyways, the, so the new identity is based off of folklore of Iceland, which Iceland is really into their folklore. I learned that from visiting their country. And they still believe in a lot of folklore, like giants and fairies and kind of these mythical creatures. And so... It's a very modern design, which I love, but it still takes that like they're really kind of intricate history and beliefs, which I also love. And they also even show the typeface that's inspired by Icelandic craftsmanship, which is kind of like chiseled wood um, lettering that they kind of transfer into this modern looking typeface. I'm actually not a huge fan of the typeface that they ended up with, but I do mm -hmm. like that you can see how it was inspired by that historical uh, piece. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious if the design studio designed this typeface. It looks, 
it looks like a design studio designed the typeface just because it's unconventional in certain ways that I feel like type designers would get finicky about. <laughs> um, but but I still love to see it and just great work to see more global perspective of what graphic design is doing. Yeah. Cool. Our next article is from Ion Design. Again, a favorite of mine. So much love for this are we just Are we going to say that every week? Every I, week? I need to stop, but I don't. can I stop the passion I feel? I don't know. <laughs> the article's name is Do We Really Need Another Grotesque? The answers and the details. And so they're talking about a grotesque typeface, everybody, just in case you don't know. That's kind of like a Helvetica is a grotesque. It's a, like a pretty clean cut, very clear, very straightforward typeface that's been around for, you know, probably almost a century at this point. And there's a lot that exists. And this article examines a new one called Forever Grotesque which I love this name, because a grotesque ultimately is very timeless. I mean, some people can say Helvetica places you in the mid-20th century, but there's still brands that use Helvetica that feel new, that feel fresh. One of my favorite quotes from this is the interviewer at Ion Design asked the creators why it's called Forever Grotesque, and they said they went through several naming options, including Noya, Noya, Project <laughs> Grotesque, Project with a K, and Grotesque Grotesque. I love their final decision of forever grotesque. I love all of these <laughs> options. I'm not going to lie. I don't know how they yeah, picked one. They're very playful. But if you look at it, the typeface, it's really playful. I think the great work of more straightforward sans serif typefaces is that, is that you can add in playful elements that aren't too distracting. But like when you see up close, they're like, oh, hey, that's something new. They have this cue that has this tail that swings around to the right and then kind of drops down. And it's this playful little sassy detail that I love. And they have that kind of thing in other moments. Like in the ampersand has a pretty unique look because you're not going to be seeing an ampersand very often. And there's really interesting cuts into the quotation marks that I've never seen before. There's like a chisel cut in right where the bulbous part of the quotation mark it's, reaches the... It's almost like it's flaying off... A layer. Yeah, yeah. Like, like they took a knife to it and are peeling it as they cut it. Yes, I love that. Uh, I'm going to only see that now. And it's nice to hear you talk about what the playful details are because we don't get a lot of opportunities to talk about typographic details and how they relate to the end product very often. The cue, the uh, quotation marks, there's a reason that this comes across as playful. There's an interesting detail where the inside of there's a two story A, right? Where it's kind of mm -hmm. an A with a hook on top, right? And mm -hmm. the inside cutout on the bottom of that A is this tiny little pinch at the end of it and leads to more weight on the left than on the right and more mm -hmm. on the top than on the bottom those asymmetrical irregularities of cutouts inside the letter, mm -hmm. once you step back and you're looking at it as tiny text, it makes this kind of dancing. Like you're, it's not a straight line as your eye follows the letters. It bounces around. And I think that's mm -hmm. where we get the idea of calling it playful. Yeah, totally. And it's in those details that only like type nerds are going to seek out and try to find that makes the viewer see this font and be like, oh, I kind of like that. Oh, surprise me there. So yeah. 
it's a really great article interviewing the creators of Forever Grotesque, which was the designer Anton Studer at the Foundry Nouvelle Noir. So also a great name. They're so good at naming. I know, I know. So yeah, excited to share that. And next up on the letter form obsessing list of articles that we sometimes share is from Letterform Archive. This is my favorite article this week. And it is called Letter Forms, Human Forms. The interaction between letters and bodies is a recurring theme in art and design history. And so one of their newest team members, Sarah Getz, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, shares what they've discovered in the archives collection and beyond. So the Letterform Archive is just like an incredible archive of different letter forms, whether that be calligraphy, print, digital. And they just, they have an online archive available. You guys should check it out. But this contributor, Sarah, found all these great links throughout history, throughout centuries of how people that are using letter forms are so fascinated with how they interact with the human body. And this is As started- in making letter forms out of images of humans. Also, if letter forms came from proportions of a human Mm. which is actually got debunked so for a while yeah for a while during the renaissance and i remember seeing these images of like the letter a and how it related to the human form but during the renaissance there were certain scholars that really wanted to prove that the proportions of the human form combined with geometric figures was the basis of an ideal letter form. And so there's images and diagrams of people and how their proportions relate to the proportions of letters. But Gaudi, Frederick Gaudi, one of my favorite contributors to letter forms and type design, actually debunks this and says that the hypothesis is not correct because the shapes of these letters have been constantly modified since the beginning. So Roman letter forms kind of come from somewhere. They weren't just like people tracing a human body and being like, that looks great. They're just derivations on previous hieroglyphs and stuff like that. So it, it's, it, it's, it's kind of like uh, drawing the golden ratio spiral on literally any image and positioning it so that it's always seemingly true. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think we know we're not so naive at this point to think that they all come from this perfect nature ratio. Some things just come from other things and it's okay that they weren't based off of the human body. But it's a great article examining that dialogue and even mentions Hangul, which is Korea's writing system. That actually directly mimics the shapes of the mouth while speaking and is said to be so intuitive that one could learn it in one morning. And South Korea's literacy is currently reported at 97.9% of the population due in part to the phonetic alphabet. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Right? Super fascinating that like Korea somehow found a way to connect the human body to these letter forms and it ended up being very successful. So there's parts like that. There's a great examination of how typographers love comparing letter forms to human body parts, the spine of the S, the eye of the E, the arms of the K, the shoulder of the N. That's all kind of common knowledge and the love that type designers have with anthropomorphizing their creations. And so, I mean, it is a really extensive article. It goes through lots of pieces of history i can't even get into them at the moment but it's worth reading and it's just really thoughtful examination of how bodies and letter forms have had this connection throughout the years sweet our last article is <laughs> not about history but is about what's happening now and that's with the intersection of coding and fonts 
This one's a little unusual because I don't think we very often linked to other podcasts. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. It just because not everybody listens to podcasts, I guess. There isn't often a writing element that you browse. You have to listen to it. That's kind of the case here with this conversation. But it's still interesting because it's about code and open source type design. And it's from the changelog, which I am fond of because they interviewed us many moons ago. Back in 2012. Ooh, wow. But it's a cool conversation with a designer slash programmer who made an open source font for programming and is designed with a lot of detail to help programming be easier on your eyeballs. It's mm-hmm. called Firacode, I think, is how we're pronouncing that one. I've certainly seen it before and was kind of impressed when I refound it this time how many upgrades there have been since the last time I saw it. Okay, so I'm looking at this and I was super confused when they mentioned ligatures before, but now that I'm seeing it, the ligatures are for like coding symbols, kind of like the fat arrow. Am I correct in assuming that? Yeah, if you type an equal sign and then a greater than symbol, it turns into a little arrow. And it's useful for your visual mind to process that this is pointing towards this other thing. And that is a thing that you see in a bunch of coding languages all the time. So it's neat that this font displays it in that way so that you'll get these nice visual indicators. That is nice. I like that. I mean, it's a similar thought with ligatures that we're familiar with thinking about the FI ligature instead of having to see this clumsy combination. It seems just like a nice, nice coded object <laughs> that is an F and an I, and it's all just one character. It's wonderful. I think one of the more interesting things is the not equals sign, which mm. doesn't come up a ton, but every once in a while you see it as uh, the thing on the left is not equal to the thing on the right. And to make a yeah. special ligature to make that obvious instead of like, equals space slash equals and you having to connect in your brain that that means oh this is not equal to or like in javascript uh, for example you can do an exclamation point equals and and have that turn into a symbol that is a little bit more readable i just think it's cool yeah you can relate to more of the struggles that i can encoding but hey that's good stuff to share and i'm glad we're gonna have it as a resource for all our listeners and readers to see I mean, that being said, it doesn't have to be strictly for programming. A lot of this was designed with programmers in mind, but it's useful outside of programming. It's useful in normal typesetting. And it's a very readable monospace font, no matter what the heck you're using it for. Like in the league redesign that we haven't launched yet on the site, I'm using monospace fonts on all of the inputs just because it, you know, it's a design choice. It's not necessary to, to do it because it's monospace, but it looks cool. And having a well-designed monospace font with a bunch of substitutions and ligatures and old-style figures is rare in a a monospace font. Like, it's just a good font to have in your library. And it's open source. It's open source. Always about that. And we'll always try to share that with our community. I think it's time for Nerd Alert. We still don't have an official sound. I'm working on it. I'm working on it, and I'm recruiting my boyfriend, Khalil, to make one. <laughs> Every time you you do the bum-bum joke, I just think of Law & Order. Bum-bum-bum-bum. <laughs> it's nerd alert. All right, so what the heck are we talking about? What's our topic this week? I'm excited. Okay, 
So this is a topic that I've been peripherally interested in for several years, and I did a deep dive, and I'm not going to say that I have like the end-all be-all answer to what I was trying to seek out, but I have some hypotheses and insights that I didn't have before, and I'm very excited to share. This week, we are talking about the immortal black letter, a style that has been surviving in subcultures. Wow, there is so much to talk about this week. I will not contain my enthusiasm because this topic is worth the enthusiasm. So, Black Letter, also known as Gothic Script, also known as Old English, also known as Textura, has a few names out there in the world. It's also, like, used globally. It was most common in Western Europe from 1150 to 16th century, And in the 15th century, it was most famously used in the Gutenberg Bible, which we are big fans of because that was like the invention of typography and movable type. And so historical associations might include Christianity, German national identity, and the Nazis. My big question is why are we still seeing black letter? I feel like all the odds were against this style of script to actually be surviving in the 21st century. And I would even say that Black Letter might be thriving right now. So how would you describe Black Letter as someone who's listening to the podcast who maybe doesn't know what Black Letter looks like? How would you describe what it looks like? I'll start by saying it's the typical nameplate font for a newspaper. The logo for the New York Times. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Like the rigid verticals of the letter forms that are connected in sometimes an ornamental way. It was used in medieval times. Like this script that has really fat stems and really thin connecting lines. And it's very calligraphic. It has a bunch of extra ornaments that tie the pieces together. These connecting lines that are illustrative. Yeah. Right? It's, it's and it's like a giant contrast. thick pen drew this. and then had these tiny connecting lines from a calligraphy brush. Yeah, so it actually predates printing era because it was famous in 1150. The Gutenberg Bible didn't come until the 15th century. So this was like kind of thriving with calligraphy and with script. A good way to remember black letter is that it's such a dark typeface and it has to contain so much ink if you were printing it that you can think it's a black letter. It's so dark. There's very little white space when you see um, something typeset in black letter. So our current associations with black letter include heavy metal, hip hop culture, streetwear, tattoos, and beer camp. Oh, liquid death. I didn't think to mention that. Oh, that's great. Liquid death is like this hilariously absurd death metal water company. Oh, I love Do you know about that. them? No. They sell filtered water, but in beer cans to death metal fans. Damn. And, and their I whole mean, brand is kind of like, water, you know? I love that. It's so funny. I mean, and that totally coincides with what my research has showed me. We have all these like current contemporary associations, and then we have these historical associations, and there's really no through line. As like, how did we get from high quality religious Christian texts is what people associate with black letter to like beer cans, liquid metal, <laughs> tattoos, and all of these other subversive cultures. Mm. So I just like, I didn't understand it. I started questioning this honestly, and I hate to bring this up now in this political world, but Kanye West came out with his Life of Pablo merch, which if you're 
a Gen Zer, like you know exactly what I'm talking about. It was all caps, like streetwear looking clothing to promote his album back in 2016. And that was the first time I saw freaking Kylie Jenner wearing a shirt with just black letter lettering. And I was like, how, how did we get here? And, you know, streetwear took from that. Streetwear brands like Supreme borrowed from that black letter. Then high fashion borrowed from that black letter. And then Rihanna and Justin Bieber also started using black letter. So like, how is it having this cultural moment? I don't understand. I wanted to figure this out. Okay. We're going to do a deep dive into recent history because black letter has a really rich history in history history that if we go back centuries and centuries, but like, again, how did we get to where we are? So I didn't want to talk about this segment without talking about how Black Letter was like first appropriated and politicized and used in the culture in a very extreme way. And that was in Nazi Germany. The Nazis were like the first group to kind of say that they had ownership over Black Letter. And they did that because in Germany, in the early 20th century, more than half of the books were printed in black letter. It was just as common to see black letter as it was to see just a regular Roman font like Times New Roman that we're familiar with. Hmm. So the Nazis thought that black letter kind of had this like purity to it, this German symbol of national purity. And so they appropriated it. They used it for their propaganda until they started expanding territories and ended up in different countries and they realized that French and Dutch foundries don't carry black letter sorts. Like they didn't have the physical type to allow them to use it when they were expanding territories. When they weren't able to have so much access to it, they said, oh, actually, we're just going to disown this. We're going to call it Jewish letters. They outlawed it and totally dissociated from it. And they were like the first people to kind of appropriate and then politicize and then let go of the black letter for, you know, a symbol of their culture. That still doesn't explain as to how we got to today because all the current associations are not related to the Nazis, but I do think it's worth mentioning that this is a font that has been a little bit used and abused. So I did some research and I'm not saying that this is for sure, but I think to get to today's uses of Black Letter, we have to go back to actually Mexico in the 20th century. Black Letter is used a lot in Mexico. I did not know this until I started doing research. And it was popularized in Mexico for centuries. I mean, it was first introduced when the Spanish colonizers came, and it was used on on the first printing presses in Mexico in the 16th century. But it survived because of of its association with Christianity, and it's still popular today with handmade signs in Mexico. Um, In the 40s, there was lots of Mexican-Americans that have recently immigrated to America and to Los Angeles, and they formed gangs. And actually these Latino gangs would use black letter to put graffiti tags up in their territory. There's evidence that these gangs have existed since the 1940s. I think the first documentation of these tags is in the 1970s. So these Latino gangs would tag with all caps black letter, which was never really seen before these tags came out because I learned how to use black letter in a calligraphic way. And you're supposed to write it mostly in lowercase, not uppercase. So there's all these tags going on. And soon in the 1970s and 80s, iron-on lettering becomes a technology available. In the 80s, still used by Latino gangs, if there was a member that died, they create memorial shirts and they'd use iron-on lettering of black letter. Because iron-on lettering is extremely accessible in terms of making your own clothing. Exactly. So they were appropriating it for t-shirts. At the same time in the 70s and 80s, 
motorcycle outlaw bikers started using black letter lettering on their clothing. Outlaw bikers specifically? Yeah, so like motorcycle bikers that were outlaws. Like actual gangs of... Yeah, bikers. yeah. Eventually... New York gangs started using the all caps black letter on their clothing. They were on motorcycles so they could drive to New York. Oh, yeah. I mean, not not necessarily the same gangs. Different gangs. No, I'm just kidding. But you're saying because motorcycle gangs in Los Angeles started using it, those are connected groups and it spread yeah. over to the whole other side of the country. I, I think that's why I don't want to say it was a definitive thing. I don't know if these were parallel pathing gangs in New York and then gangs in LA and then the motorcycle gangs. I mean, those weren't necessarily groups that were associating with each other. Mm. There's been documentation of people theorizing that they've influenced each other. There's also a theory that gangs in New York saw Easy Rider, the movie, which showed motorcyclists, and they saw this like anti-corporate youth rebellion and they were soon able to use iron-on lettering as this, like, youth rebellion type of thing. Hmm. So it's a web. I wouldn't say it's a through line. It's definitely a web. And I think it's worth talking about because eventually this was used by hip-hop culture and used on album covers by Snoop Dogg and Tupac used Black Letter. And, you know, there are through lines with this idea of Black Letter being a symbol for anti-establishment, being a symbol for individuality, and easily appropriated, very easily accessible with, with the technology of iron-on lettering. And eventually, if we like come to modern day, it's been commodified by companies. Like in the last 10 years, Juicy Couture and Reebok have used it for campaigns to show that they're edgy or to show that they're kind of individuality. And a common theme in modern capitalism a subculture having a particular style that is recognizable mm -hmm. some celebrity making that visible on a more national or international scale and then mm -hmm. corporations wanting to associate themselves with that sect of consumer and so they mm -hmm. adopt what was previously some subcultures styling in order to be approachable by the people they want to sell to right Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately how like we end up with Kylie Jenner posing with a photo of Kanye West shirt, who is reaching millions of people. And all of a sudden people are seeing this black letter being used by their favorite celebrities. And it like kind of rises into culture. The designer for that merch, the Life of Pablo merch that used the all black letter did say he directly referenced memorial shirts by Latin gang from the mm -hmm. 80s. And that's not a thing that you can really realize until you examine it. And so it might actually still go back to Mexico and Mexican-Americans bringing over their culture and tradition and then spreading from there. It's possible. I think there's lots of theories. I think no matter what you ground yourself in, I think it's worth saying that when design history is so stuck in this linear fashion of like Art Deco happened and art, after Art Deco was modernism, after modernism, et cetera, et cetera. And oh, Black Letter is happening because postmodernism exists and people love appropriating that stuff. Like, I think that's a very one directional tunnel vision view of the history of something that has so much nuance and is really surviving because of subcultures, not because of any big movement that happened in the past 50 years. Designers are still making Black Letter and it's really fascinating to know that it wasn't because because of one big popularized movement that existed, it was more of this global web that has like brought it up to where it is today. I've heard you talk recently about how shifts in trends 
and design can be happening for two different reasons at roughly the same time, have totally different mm -hmm. outputs, and then end up being lumped together into one history book that's trying to make things, like you said, linear, right? Like you've been learning a lot about unexpected chunks of history that we don't really talk about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this was one of them. And this is why I was so excited to research it. I'm like very okay not coming to a super conclusive answer. But nevertheless, if I'm a designer that wants to use black letter for a specific project, like I feel I'm responsible for knowing that history and knowing the nuances of it as well. Well, that is really fascinating, my friend. I was very excited to share this with everyone this week. Really neat. And something that uh, I think we've all seen exists, but a lot of us don't even question where the history is or why we're seeing it now. So that's, uh, that's some, some useful background education. Thanks, Olivia. I'm happy. And I'm happy to impart it. You're welcome. It was a fun one this week. <laughs> all right. So that's all the fun links we got. That's our sweet nerd alert section. Uh, special thank you again to all of the members who are supporting us every month. Excited to show you what we have in store coming soon. And shout out too to say, hey, we're still looking for sponsors. So if anybody has a cool product that fellow type nerds would love mm -hmm. to hear about, reach out to mm -hmm. us. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, and, we would. Uh, we will be back next week with even more fun stuff. See ya.